creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. This is Allison. And Nick. <laughs> and here's what we'll be covering today. Uh, we're going to be covering primarily 1 Timothy 3. Yep. Um, but first, we're going to do a book corner, um, and then I'll do this section on overseers, and Nick will do the uh, deacons. Yep. Uh, next, we'll cover maybe just a couple questions um, we draw from John MacArthur's rating, since a lot of people seem to know about it, um, so it might be worthwhile. And then we'll wrap up and suggest some reading. All right. So do you want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So uh, my directed study for Fuller just ended, so I had to read a bunch of books on hell this final week. And so we read the Four Views on Hell book, the second edition, edited by Preston Sprinkle. And overall thoughts are I really wish this book could have had an extra 100 or 200 pages because hmm. I checked the index and I read through the thing twice. There are no references to Second Temple Judaism. Oh, interesting. There's no references to Greco-Roman literature. It's simply the New Testament as a contained document. And if you read the Eternal Torment section, the Old Testament is largely indispensable. Is largely dispensable. Two verses, you know, Isaiah 66 and Daniel 12. Nothing else about the Psalms or Torah or Lex Talion. So they only really cover two verses in the two, Old Testament? Two verses in the Old Testament and, and one verse from Paul. Nothing really from Hebrews or the Catholic epistles. It's essentially two from Revelation, a bunch from the Gospels, one from Paul. So basically all of Eternal Torment, according to Danny Burke and the person he uses, the grid, the ten texts, Robert Peterson, uh, basically everything in the Bible about this doctrine can be summed up in 10 verses to the exclusion of the totality of 66 books of what we call the Christian Bible. Hmm. So uh, a massive failure. I only agreed with his exegesis maybe on the Revelation texts. Um, everything else he cited was essentially a foundationalist approach, a I'm going to assume my own lens, and that's the only way these texts can be read. So a very narrow, very oddly uh, metaphorical when he should be literal and very literalistic when he should be metaphorical so, so is he reading all the other text in light of yep, in light of that. yeah this comes up a lot yeah and so basically isaiah even though it says corpses that's really prophetic or should be read i don't even think he says should be read prophetically it's prophetic for revelation and the final torment of the wicked uh, mm. how a, a corpse can be tormented forever is of course left uh unspoken that's interesting but <laughs> then you have john stackhouse who argues for essentially what is my position i don't i thought it was a compelling one uh fairly light on scripture or at least in depth because the position requires essentially a treatment like edward fudge's 400 page tome um but brought up some great stuff robin perry i think had the best essay arguing for universalism even though i thought exegetically i, I wasn't convinced by any of it i thought his reading of paul is very narrow and the destruction or hell texts that if we want to call them that were subsumed under a theological narrative which if mm -hmm. you don't accept the narrative i mean the it doesn't matter what the texts say at that is point is it a the an artificial theological narrative impressed on the text or what do you mean by i that? think so i think he presses uh colossians one is kind of the grid by which everything should be read uh, okay so, so going back to foundationalism yeah exactly ah, okay. um so so you get the sense in which he says the teleological end, God is all in all, is kind of grandiose stuff. But then you get to the telos texts that apply apoleia or destruction that use the same word, telos, mm -hmm. that you kind of run into this 
um, you basically, in order to affirm what he says, you have to affirm, you basically have to keep speaking where scripture stops, where scripture seems definitive, uh, consistently definitive on destruction as the end of the wicked. You have to go, but that's not the end of the story. And it's like, well, that is the end. Well, basically the story ended the way, basically God gave us what we wanted story-wise and we have to keep telling the story. It's like, no, God ended the story. We tell the story as best we can. Mm-hmm. Now we could be wrong on the text. I could be absolutely wrong about Paul being a universalist, but that would need to be shown. And I don't think that's been shown very well. Okay. Anyway, then you have, to sum it up, you have Jerry Walls, who essentially agrees with Danny Burke, except Burke is a Calvinist and Walls is a staunch Arminian. And basically they bicker about, you know, whether or not God sends people to hell or we send ourselves to hell or how that works. Okay. Then he argues for purgatory in relation to that, but it's not compelling. It's it's an interesting, if you're into philosophy, it's interesting, but it's pretty thin scripturally. Okay. So, but all in all, I think it's a failure. The book is a failure in the sense that you don't talk. They don't talk at all about Second Temple literature. They don't talk about the historical milieu of the New Testament. The New Testament is not something that sprang up out of nothing. It, it's a book of history, and essentially that history is left off from what they do. So in that sense, it's a failure. If you want to know what how evangelicals argue for their position poorly, this is a great book. And that's not to say these guys are bad guys. They're great scholars. It's just. That's how evangelicals argue. We argue foundationalistically or we argue artificially through theological narratives. Anyway, that's what I read this week. Okay, fun. Um, I'd actually like to share what I read earlier um, or finished reading. Oh, okay. Last time I mentioned this book but didn't really talk about it. Um, it was Text, Church, and World by Francis Watson. And basically he tries to return us to the theology component in the Bible. Um, hmm. You know, go figure, the Bible is a theological book. No. Um, and unfortunately, there's a tendency in biblical studies to try to to, to divorce theology from um, what they do. Hmm. So it, he, he sees it as they're confusing meaning with reference. So hmm. if we can um, figure out um, what this um, individual passage is conveying, can we parse all the words, then we'll have quote, the meaning of the text. So the, the meaning of the text is grounded literally in the words themselves and not on the story the words tell. Uh, in part. Okay. And then also they think that if you can reconstruct the history or what really happened or maybe the um, different stages that a book went um, throughout history in order to get a final okay. form, yeah. then you can know the real meaning of the text when that's furthest from the truth. And um, we think of the final form as... God's inspired word. Hmm. Um, and that can get into some interesting questions as well. Yeah. Um, so he basically wants to say, um, instead of just trying to reconstruct history, um, let's get back into uh, the narrative flow of the text and how the text itself uses other texts. Hmm. Um, and so, for example, this is my favorite example. This is kind of the aha moment. Um, he t- offers the Pharisees being angry with the disciples about picking rain on the Sabbath. Hmm. God forbid. Hmm. Um, Jesus actually appeals to the story of David feeding himself rather than Numbers 15, 32 to 36 that calls for stoning of Sabbath breakers. Um, now, again, there's some interesting things going on here. Um, some people think Jesus is just throwing out the law, saying it's not applicable. Um, I actually think he's going back to the intention of the law. Um So the Old Testament law, these were not supposed to be like pure, independent, standalone divine commands. Pure propositions, essentially. Yeah, to be obeyed. Like you can just read it and automatically know everything that God commands you to do. Um, Basically, Jesus goes back to its right narrative framework of the law. Um, The liberation from the Exodus. Hmm. 
Um, Deuteronomy 5, 13, 15. Uh, The law was meant to curb employers and slave owners who were potential oppressors. Hmm. Um, Basically, he's trying to take them back to real freedom from work for the workers. And that's the intention of that law on stoning on the Sabbath. It's tried to protect the workers, not to try to... Um, I don't know, stone them from trying to feed themselves, feeding themselves. Gotcha. Um, okay. So, yeah, so it's all about going back to the intended context. And I uh, did a little Facebook poll online and um, asked people, does do not step on the grass by penalty of death um, have different meanings depending on context? And it was interesting to see responses. Um, basically, people thought it was hilarious, which it is. <laughs> and it's hilarious because you wouldn't see that in our context. But, no. you know, if you shift it to some other country, someone said, how about North Korea? Maybe you might take it a little more seriously. Yeah, I, I, you'd probably get bombed or, you know, taken to the, the prisons and never seen again. So, yeah. Lovely. Contextual propositions. Who'd have thought? Yay. So, on this lovely note... Um, we'll go into First Timothy 3. This text isn't usually used in the... It's not... Uh, it doesn't have the same force or proof text appeal as 1 Timothy 2.12, does it? Um, I At think, least in your experience? You're, you're more, you've done more work in this, I, I think. Yeah, so I've kind of noticed that people appeal to this as um, more attached to the 2 Timothy 2, um, 11 and 12. Oh, the 1 Timothy? Yeah. Or, yeah, sorry, First Timothy... We're going to actually get into some of the other um, passages as well, so you'll hear a bit more on that. Yeah, but. so we're a bit scattered. We'll, if you hear us say something like that, it just uh, cut us a little bit of a break. We're, yep. we're weird and nervous. That will happen many times. Yeah. So first, um, I'd like to recap a little bit of what we covered before in um, First Timothy 2. And the thing is, uh, what we decided was that this isn't really about gender roles whatsoever. I mean, the theology throughout um, chapter one and chapter two, it's about salvation. Uh, Jesus, the one mediator between God and humanity. We saw, you saw, or you heard last time that I was very annoyed with reading the ESV and how it kept saying he, 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 when it's anthropos, it's humanity. It's person. Yeah. So this whole framework has more um, of salvation of everyone in mind. Therefore, we pray for for everyone, including people in authority. and translating it as he, he, he kind of mutes that emphasis there, hmm. in my opinion. Um, back in the day, we used to use he as a um, general term for any person. Well, that's what the rabbis would do. They'd walk into a room, be 10 women, one guy be like, all right, gentlemen, let's sit down and do our thing or let's read the law. It's not that they're excluding the women. That's just how they talk. Yeah. And so you'll, you'll see that in uh, the Bible frequently where it'll say, um, uh, brothers when it's actually inclusive of brothers and sisters yeah um but it doesn't do that here it has very much a distinct emphasis on all salvation of humanity um and so another big theme that came up was false teachers hmm. and how paul's trying to curb false teaching throughout um this context and we see that in the commands um, let women let the women learn. Um, that's connected to um, just some ways that they're not acting appropriately in various ways. Yeah. But he's not allowing them to teach. And it, is it really that surprising that he's not allowing these people to teach when they're not showing godly behavior as he's outlined? And they're not learning. Right. Yeah. You don't um, let someone teach who's not learning. That's not right. Yeah. And such emphases are in other passages too. Um, you can read 2 Corinthians 11. Um, 
sometimes the analogy is different. So the Eve being the deceiver, or sorry, Eve being deceived and therefore deceiving is also an analogy in first in Second Corinthians eleven, um, in uh, Romans five. Adam is the typological person that hmm. leads us all into sin and death, um, and it's contrasted with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um. Same contrast here, anyway, with um Eve with Eve instead of Adam. Um. Just depends on the emphases he's trying to draw out. Um. And in this case, you had the women being deceived, just like Eve. Um. And we ended off with a, in my opinion, is a Christological statement. Um. Let's see if I can find... It was 1 Timothy 2.15, wasn't it? Yep. 1 Timothy 2.15. But she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with soundness of mind. Um, and we remembered that soundness of mind was something they uh, that Paul mentioned earlier. Um, and the chi- it's the childbearing, not childbearing generally. He's not... Uh, we, we decide he's talking about... He's going back... He's referencing back to Eve um, and the typology where... Um, these false teachers are also um, can have salvation through Jesus Christ. That was also part of the promise in Genesis to Eve, um, crushing the head of the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's attached to continuing in faith and love and sanctity, with soundness of mind. So um, this whole part has been, how do you live in the reality of God's love for humanity? Also as a minority and under an empire as well, yeah. the Roman Empire. So. Yep, so now to launch into our passage. 1 Timothy 3. Yay! Okay, so um, 3.1a is actually already interesting. Um, it's, I'm trying to think of how to say that. It's a, a trustworthy statement is what he starts with. It's just a trustworthy statement. Yeah. And so the question is, is it referring back or is it referring forward um, to what comes next in the deacon and overseer section? Um, I actually take it to be referring back to the Christological statement, and huh. that's uh, a little surprising to me. Um, but when I read other instances of that phrase, um, it seems that it's also in Christological context. Hmm. Um, so you can read um, also one fifteen. we saw it, um, 4.9. In 1 Timothy? Yep, in 1 okay. Timothy. Um, and then 2 Timothy 2.11, Titus 1.9, Titus 3.8. And so... I'm going to say that the trustworthy statements, almost like a liturgical re- repetition, um, is going back to um, the Christological statement. Okay. Um, and so what what bearing does this have on this section? Um, I think what he says next all comes out of this theology and all comes out of his Christology. Okay. And so he's going to tell us even more how to live as um, people that want to aspire leadership positions. So... I'm going to actually switch um, back and forth between the ESV and the CEB. And the reason for that is going to come up now um, because the ESV gives you, and other Bible translation, give you the impression that Paul is almost emphasizing, as people have repeated back to me, um, that men are supposed to be in charge. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read the ESV, and then I'm going to read you the CEB, and we're going to talk about some of those differences. So ESV says, um, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above approach, sorry, reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
and goes on and on. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well... Yeah, so it goes on and on. He, 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 he. Um, CEB says, this is a reliable saying. If anyone has a goal to be a supervisor in the church, they want a good thing. So the church's supervisor must be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouses, sober, modest, and honest. They should show hospitality and skilled at teaching and be skilled at teaching. So you'll notice um, no masculine pronouns and actually the CEB has it right. Um, Uh, The non-literalistic you know, translation actually got it right. Wow. Yeah. Well, ESV prides itself at being literalistic. It's not, um, it's very wooden in some places and that can be a value for people studying Koine. The, but the it, Old Testament, it actually is very helpful in a lot of the Old Testament texts. Right. But all this to say, it's also very biased and that creeps in. Um, here's, here's why it, there's no masculine. Pro- basically first it starts with anyone that's tis. That's feminine, masculine. It's not, it's inclusive. It's not he, 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 he. Yeah, already. There's a specific word for he, and it's not used here. Yeah. And there are no masculine pronouns um, throughout verses 1 through 12. They don't exist. So putting them in there is actually functioning to distort the passage rather than... It's a theological interpretation. It's, it's, an, it's inference. It's not actually in the text. Right. And so what I mean, what he means by that is that they are taking their, the theology they've decided is already in First um, Timothy 2 and are already decide, you know. It's consistency. They're being consistent with what they think 1 Timothy 8, 2, 8 through 15 teaches. Yeah. And before that, again, he was used as a generic um, and now it's not. So there's some of that going on too, yeah. um, where now it's actually distorting the text rather than maybe people didn't pay it any mind as much before. I don't know. If a woman heard he, she, she'd be, she knows she would be included in that. Yeah. And so it's not, nowadays women feel differently uh, and, and should because he takes on a very identity centric kind of way. But anyway, yeah. Right. Yep. So, um, so we had, all right, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work they desire to do. I'm just going to replace the he with they. Because my Bible of choice for these last few years is the ESV, so I have to live with it. So if I accidentally say he, you'll know it doesn't exist. Um, so next is an overseer, th- overseer then must be above reproach, the ho- uh, one woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. I say one woman man um, because that's more in line with the, I guess, the woodenness of the phrase. It's supposed to be taken... Um, as a whole, maybe idiomatic. Um, the big thing here is not saying that you have to one be male and two be married. Um, it's supposed to just be convey conveying monogamy. Um, people understood this before. Um, I'm going to actually read a little bit of Chrysostom to you. His homily on first Timothy three, two states, this, he does not lay down as a rule as if he, an overseer must not be without one, a wife, but as prohibiting his having more than one. So people understood this before that it wasn't supposed to be sectioning out um, maleness and sectioning out um, a ban on singleness for leadership positions. Um, and so basically what's happening, people are doing something they don't do even in normal language conve- conventions is taking a something that's supposed to convey an idiom conveying um, monogamy or whatever it is and like parsing out that one word man and making it its own second 
um, commandment, which isn't happening. And yeah. it's just a weird thing that people are doing now. And it's exegetically bad. No one does. No one would ever tell you to do that in an exegetical class. Um, I, at least I hope they don't. So next section. Um, they have to not be addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. So that's another requirement for someone who wants to lead. Um, I think that's hard in our generation. Um, people hmm. really like to drink lots of alcohol and get drunk. Um, it's an accepted norm. Um, he contrasts it with being gentle, gentle, peace, peaceable, free from the love of money. So basically God is the center, um, living a godly, quiet life, as he mentioned in um, chapter two, is the goal, not yeah. any of these negative behaviors. Let's see. And I, I'd also like to point out that there's something similar all of this is similar to what he says elsewhere. Um, you can look this up in Titus. Um, and it's the same deal there, too. It's There's no masculine pronouns. Titus 1? Yeah. Um, and you also get similar commands cropping up on not being addicted to wine and other things. Hmm. Um, so next is... Here's the... <laughs> so they must be... <laughs> I have to switch to the CEB because the ESV distorts this so so badly. Uh, okay, they should manage their own households well. They so should. This, which one, which translation is this? I'm going into the CEB. CEB. Okay. They should manage their own household well. They should see that their children are obedient with complete respect. Yep. So this is I want this is an interesting section um, because if you think about it in First Timothy five fourteen, women are also told to rule their households. Um, the word is actually despotis, which is despots. Be a despot over your household. Um, and that's so you don't follow Satan. Yeah. Which, oh my. But um, the ESV, interestingly, instead of using the force of the despotis, likes to say women should just keep their house, um, which is not really anything like what the passage is Yeah, that's not conveying. what the verb means. The verb means to rule your house. It's an infinitive. To rule your household or to be a despot of your house. Right, and we should and we shouldn't take this in the revo- reverse. Where Paul, like, oh, Paul's teaching gender roles, and so women are the natural rulers of the household, so they rule over their husbands. No, no, like that's not that's not the point here. And in this section, he's talking to everyone, and it doesn't matter if he even singled out women in this passage. It wouldn't mean that's only applicable to women or to one gender even. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Basically, he doesn't want someone that is has, has a disorderly home, meaning um, maybe their children are out of line and doing horrible, terrible things. Um, there's lots of Old Testament stories to that effect. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they have to be very well-rounded and mature, godly individuals. Um, they can't be a new convert um, so that they will not become conceited and fall into condemnation condemnation incurred by the devil. Um, yeah. So God Satan appears a lot in these texts. <laughs> Diabolos actually appears yeah. a bunch in my section too. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, so conceit is considered deadly and very dangerous. Um, actually, it's on the list of sins God hates the most. Haughty eyes. Pride. That's something we do not take seriously enough in our churches. Hmm. Um, we do not want a prideful pastor. And we don't want to be prideful because that separates us from God and puts us above um, God's people. 
and that's considered something that can lead to um, to ruin. So let's just avoid the pride. <laughs> um, Okay, so, and they must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that they will not enter, yeah, so that they will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there it is again. Um, let's avoid the devil. Because <laughs> the devil is bad. Yep, that's an old song, by the way. That's a good song. Anyway, um, so you have to have a good relationship with those outside of the church, not just people that are in your clique. And we see this a lot in actually every human society. Um, people are very um, empathetic and good yeah. towards generally um, the people that are inside their group. Yeah. Um, they found that terrorists are not abnormal people. Inside um, their own group. In terms of empathy, they love yeah. the people in their own group, but they just, we are outside of it and we are horrible, horrible people that need to die. So yeah. um, all that to say, um, someone that's going to be a good leader in the church is going to have good relationships with those outside of their group. And as, again, it goes back to God's love for all people and God desiring the good for all, the good for all people. So um, that's an important requirement as well. And with that, I will let Nick go to his section. All right, I have the easier section because even com most, many complementarians actually agree with my section here about women deacons. But I'm going to read, I did my own translation of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. So, uh, speaking in verse 8, deacons or ministers, if I say deacon or minister, it's referring to the same word. Deacons in this same way should be noble, not double-talking, not devoted to a lot of wine, not profiteering through greed, having the mystery of faithfulness by a clean conscience. And these should, and these also should be approved first, then let them serve without being, without, being without accusation. Women in this same way, same word, noble, not diabolical, so, uh, sober, faithful in everything. Deacons should be monogamous, literally the same idiom is used, husband of one wife. Children devoted to good things and their own households. For the ones having served well, have a rank for themselves, a good gain, and much confidence and faith in Christ Jesus. I, I, I translate that a little more woodenly in some instances. Uh, I never know when to get flowery because, you know... I, <laughs> don't want to go out of turn. But essentially, if we go through this, the word deacon, diakonos, appears in verses 8 and 12. Uh, it occurs 29 times in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, authorities or powers in Romans 13, 4 are called God's diakonos. Uh, Christ is also called a diakonon in Romans 15, 8. So there's instances where the word could refer to a servant or to something like that, although it, it probably carries, has a more titular form than, say, doulos, or, which means slave or servant, which is used more commonly. So it's not a slave in the sense of uh, someone with lo of low status, but rather it's a person of high status who serves. So it's mm. probably a better way of saying it. So it's a title applied to Paul in Colossians 1, Tychicus in Colossians 4, Epaphras in Colossians 1, and others. And it, but, and it does not appear to be a gendered title in the sense that it, in, it is an exclusive term only for men. It includes also uh, missionary activity. And so it could be, it'd be best understood idiomatically for us today as like a minister or assistant pastor or someone like that. Yeah, in a lot of liturgical churches, um, the deacon is not just someone who visits people and like, I don't know, washes the curtains or something. Or brings tea. Yeah. Although they, I like tea. They actually do quite a lot. They're maybe comparable to an assistant pastor in many contexts. If we were to just uproot 1 Timothy 3 and supplant it today, that's what they would be essentially. Uh, the, Somewhat, yeah. the significance of, of, of this is twofold. One, or first, we have explicit reference to a woman deacon in Romans 16, and we have explicit data for women deacons in the early church. So let me go through that really quickly. 
Uh, Phoebe is called a diaconon of a specific church, the Church of Cancrea, which means it's probably a title. She could be a person, uh, the deacon of the Church of Wait, Cancrea. Wait, so she's called a deacon, not a deaconess? Yeah, deacon. Mm. Uh, Paul commends her or recommends her to the church, uh, calling her a sister, which is a familial term, suggesting his viewing her as family, as someone very close to him. This is not just a random person. In the interval, you don't recommend someone you don't know or love or respect. She is also called a patron or prostatus. Bdag, the standard Greek lexicon, defines the masculine term as, quote, one who looks out for the interests of others, defender, guardian, benefactor. However, when the word refers to a woman, they render in a separate category as a woman in a supportive role, <laughs> patron, benefactor. So apparently it means something really good when a man does it. And when a woman does it, it means she's automatically supportive. Here, there's no indication that Phoebe is in a, quote, supportive role. Yeah, lots of little games um, yeah. where suddenly terms that have usual meanings of leadership are suddenly defined away only in the context of women yeah. for no real good reason. Yeah. So we have a woman who is single, perhaps. No husband is mentioned, which means she's probably of high, she has to be of high status if she is single. A patron or a guardian or benefactor of Paul, someone who probably funded him or helped him. A deacon of a specific church or even the Church of Cancra who probably is the one who delivered Romans to the Roman church. And explained it. And explained it. Would have to explain it. I mean, she's talking. She, I mean, you don't just give it. All right, thanks. I delivered the package like UPS and left. It's, <laughs> she'd probably have to stay there. And they're told specifically to help her whatever she needs. So it's probably, you know, give her assistance. Help, treat her like a sister. Treat her like as a member of the family. And I think it also with leadership connotations, um, yeah. basically do what she says. Yeah, she was a prostatus of Paul's. You know, she was, you know, she helped Paul. This is not, a, Paul doesn't view her as a subordinate here. It's, we could just say he views her as his right hand, his, him, his, you know, all that kind of stuff. So aside from Phoebe, we have women deacons in the early church. Ida Spencer and her commentary on 1 Timothy footnote uh, 264. And I quote, two female, quote, ministers or ministre of uh, Bithena Pontus in Asia Minor were tortured during Emperor Trajan's reign in 80, uh, 98 through 117 as the leaders of their congregation. Spencer also cites McKenna, who says throughout Asia Minor, um, this is where, of course, Ephesians and Colossians were probably written. The deaconesses were a popular and important body of church women. So we have women deacons and thus precedents for affirming women deacons, although, of course, we would not limit women to that title. And so more, yeah, anyway, so then we get to 1 Timothy 3.11, where it talks, where it uses the term women, gunikais, or gunikas. Um, so are women called deacons here? Well, yes, I think they are, and they're for three reasons. Uh, first is the Greek word for woman is used without qualification or pronoun, as is his gunikos, or something like that. Um, Paul's use of minister or deacon in verse 8 is spoken of not in terms of gender-specific qualities or qualifications. Wait, so in other words, these aren't, when Paul says um, deacons and then wa and then women, gune, again, mm -hmm. um, he's not saying, he's not meaning, oh, wives of deacons. Yeah, no, this is specifically women likewise are in this same way mm -hmm. as the deacons in verse 8. Yeah, there's a lot of likewise throughout. Yep. Um, we even saw that earlier in... Um, 1 Timothy. Yeah, 1 Timothy 2... Um, where likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it's supposed to say similar to what I said before. Yeah. Or in the same way. Yeah. In the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, so his use of that is not spoken of in terms of gender specific or exclusive qualities or qualifications. And the use of the adverb likewise in verse 11, right after women grammatically links verse 11 with the qualities of everything said in verse eight. So thus women are included in these qualifications without reservation. Second, as Jamie Hubner notes, the quote, the requirements listed for the women in 311 are almost identical to those of deacons in general in 3, 8 through 10. 
And third and finally, Phoebe was a deacon, as has already been established, and so it makes sense that Paul's theological missional framework that these would be women too. There's no reason for him to exclude these only to the wives of deacons. There's no reason to do that because we know of women deacons elsewhere. And yep. so uh, and so there is that. And so the, the final thing uh, in this is to note is, is this list exhaustive or, as we would say, um, definitive in what it sets out? And I would say no. Definitely not. Because, one, Jesus and Paul were not married. They did not have households that we know of. We did, not, we did not know if they have children. We know Jesus didn't because he wasn't married. Or even slaves. You know, we all know what Paul thought of slavery, especially with Onesimus. He freed him so he could serve as a beloved brother, not as a slave. So, no, this list is not definitive. And so we cannot force every single thing to be filtered through this. This list is a grid that can help us determine stuff, but it cannot be that which excludes. No, it could actually exclude someone. Uh, someone who is not monogamous. Yeah, if you're and not so, monogamous, yeah, you're yeah. not going to be a leader. If yeah. you're a prideful, arrogant person. Yeah, you're, um, if you're yeah. like the devil, you know, you're not going to be. You know, so th- these, this is a good list, but it's not an exhaustive list. Right, and it's really like this whole, like the whole point here for Paul is he's trying to counteract a way. He wants to, he wants people to live godly lives. Yes. That's what he says his telos is. Um, he actually says, you know, this is my telos um, and spells it out for us. And he also wants it's part of living a quiet godly life like this is not supposed to be an exhaustive list of um how a church is supposed to function he's addressing specifically false teachers and people that are living um lives consumed with themselves and consumed with power um so now he's trying to in this section he's i think trying to show us what proper leadership looks like yep we saw we saw some very bad examples and now and we saw some very general good examples before that but now he's giving he's getting a little more concrete here yeah so it's it's weird i don't think paul would write a list that would automatically and definitively exclude his own ministry yeah that would be kind of awkward yeah paul shows up (laughs) like, i want to be an elder and there's like sorry where's your wife sorry paul you have no wife you have no children and where are your slaves paul you know yeah but anyway, and so, um, yeah. At that, least he requires, he gets his mail. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so that's 1 Timothy 3 in a nutshell. Um, and so we had a response to John MacArthur lined up. Cause, oh, yeah. Because he's, uh, he's, he he's kind of the big guy that people appeal to. And so, well, or at not, least he's okay, the most popular, so, I should say. Yeah, he's not really a big deal in scholarly circles at all. Um, I just personally have heard people mention him. Um, that are in Bible studies that okay. um, maybe they read a book once on this and it happened to be MacArthur. Yeah. Um, it, you'll you'll see you'll oh. see the problem with okay. MacArthur. When yeah. He... So um, <laughs> well, we're not going to go through everything he says. His book's long, but there are two big quotes I wanted to respond to, or I feel we already have responded to. Yep. So MacArthur says, "Quote, here, read, read them." No, I have them right here. Okay. Uh, and this is on one Timothy three. This is his big text that he likes to use, and I quote. Uh, An essential requirement for a church leader is that he should be a man. The indefinite pronoun tis, which he translates as any man, should be taken here as masculine in agreement with the masculine form of the adjectives in verses 2 through 6. Presumably what MacArthur means is that grammatical gender dictates the gender of the referent, which is not supported by by Greek grammar. That's just not how Greek grammar works. No, not at all. It's actually quite frightening if you are even just a beginning Greek student. Like, you can open up mounts and see, um, number one, that tis is not a masculine it's supposed to be a masculine pronoun whatsoever and you don't you talk about grammatical gender well no, i'll give you an example ah. acts uh 2625 there is a feminine noun that gets applied to someone in there and that someone is paul therefore using macarthur's logic paul is a woman 
<gasps> well, I guess he doesn't require no, <laughs> so, the last requirement. Yeah, but the idea that grammatical <laughs> gender applies in an exclusive way that discounts the ministry of women is simply bogus. You don't get to yeah. say this is a masculine, uh, this is masculine, therefore not women. It's like no, mas- language is masculine or feminine. Wisdom is feminine, therefore only women can be. Uh, yeah, wise. like every almost everything has a grammatical house has gender. a grammatical gender. Yeah, it's not supposed to be saying oh house is somehow inherently feminine or yeah no whatever. it's just it's it's a way of it's it's a way ironically I think it's a way of using grammatical gender in a way that plays off people's lack of knowledge on Greek and it's like you you don't you are going to be held to account for basically doing saying something I'm pretty certain you know is not right. Or, or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he may he doesn't. have completely forgot all his Greek training. That's actually very possible. It's, it's possible. but And so the second issue, of course, is this assertion that tis means any man. Um, we've already talked about that. And, and so basically, it, it doesn't work. If Paul wanted to use a term that conveyed, he would have used on air. He would have used something like that or yeah. male. Um, and then he says in the second quote that we will refute is he says, a woman could hardly be a one-woman man, nor did women in that day had household. So there's two things wrong with this. Well, major, well, there's a lot of things wrong with it. A woman could hardly be a one-woman man. It's like, if we understand the idiom is monogamous, then yes, a woman could be a one-woman man, especially in the later section in 1 Timothy. Yeah, so we, you know, a lot of commentators think it's um, also a ban against polygamy in particular. Yeah. And, I mean, surprise, surprise, um, women were in the ancient world generally didn't have Multiple Many husbands. <laughs> husbands. You know, they yeah. may have. Maybe this command could apply to them if they were a prostitute or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if 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 Paul, if there were, if there was a woman that had six or seven husbands in <laughs> in in Ephesus right now, Paul could have written. He could have actually written it grammatically. Would have actually worked just fine. Right. Not likely in a patriarchal society, though. No. Let's just say that. I mean, you got a man will have multiple slaves that he has sex with, multiple wives, and all that kind of stuff. So and so women, it's a it's a stu- it's a stupid point that. Yeah. Right. And again, women in the ancient world, they exist to have children for their husbands. Yep. Um, so there's that. And I mean, frankly, they're also oftentimes supposed to be in charge of the household. They're supposed yeah. to manage it for their husband. So they run everything and um, oftentimes they work from their home too. And what he says about women in that day did not head households, uh-huh. that, that's just demonstrably false. The, that is just insane. As we already talked about, uh, the Oiko Desputane in 1 Timothy 2, 5, 14. What's to, that? To rule one's household. The the, ver, the, the, the one is... Uh, There's that word for house and then the word for despot. despot. Yeah. And, yeah. And so women are told to rule their households, not we would call you know we wouldn't say of course you know that's exclusively feminine that only women can be the rulers of their household yeah they're told to do basically they're told to act godly in their own context and in this context women are the ones running the household that's their responsibility and there's also a a verse in the new testament that directly refutes macarthur's statement nympha and colossians 414 this is she sent a greeting and the church that meets in her house yep and the church that meets in her house no husband in sight and the church meets in her house I mean, the, and per, you'll remember Lydia yeah, had a household. Lydia had a household, <laughs> and the one sent from Chloe and Claude in one Corinthians one eleven. The ones by Chloe, no husband is mentioned, and there was a plural article in front of Chloe. And so these are sent from her, possibly slaves. You we don't know. You could say in English terminology that women were the heads of their household. Yeah, and so the New Testament refutes his his baseless assertion, and so that's yeah. And it's even if it were true, that's not a, an exclusive ban on women in ministry. That that's a tendentious point, and frankly, I'm kind of annoyed that people think that's <laughs> compelling. And so, yeah, there's there, there's much more to refute in that book, but and based on our our on, on the time we have left, 
and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I think that more than sums up the objections we could face, popular objections, and shows that this text, far from excluding women from leadership, is actually an encouragement for them to aspire to the office of overseer and deacon and to use their gifts wherever God has called them within certain rules of not being, you know, like the devil, you know, not being drunk, not being Right, and so just a heads up to some Bible programs, if you click the mouse over um, some of the pronouns that appear in other areas, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it'll, or um, sorry, different words even, um, sometimes if, so for instance, if you clicked over TIS, um, some of them will actually say, Masculine, masculine, which is interesting, and here, here's, here's where it gets, um, where it's a little deceptive, but not altogether wrong. Um, Tis is feminine, masculine, so it's not wrong that it says it's masculine, but it's not right either. Hmm. And so, if you wanted, um, I strongly just encourage, just go to, even if you don't know Mal, or if you know, don't know Greek, and you just want to know is this true or not, just pick up mounts, look for the section on. Um, the like tis and you'll and the demonstrative pronouns, relative pronouns, and look it up, and you'll see feminine, masculine, yeah. and inclusivity. It'll be anyone. Yeah. And do we want to recommend any uh, any literature real quick? Or? Yeah, let's. Yeah, Jim and Hubner. Yeah, I have Jim and Hubner's uh, his master thesis, which was published by Whitfenstock. It's called A Case for Female Deacons. It's really solid. It focuses on Phoebe and our, the text I discussed, one Timothy three eleven, and also historical theology how deacons, women deacons have been viewed throughout church history, Karl Barth, Wycliffe, Augustine, you know, Calvin, and all that. And it's a, it's a solid work. It's really short. It's less than 100 pages. Pretty cheap book, but really solid. And Jamin's a good guy, and he's a lot of fun to read and talk to. So what about you? Who do you, who do you recommend? Um, yeah, so I would recommend Hubner. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's actually someone out there that does a bunch of, um, Kate, like, different murals um of women deacons and priests um Mm. and she releases them in calendars her name is dorothy urban and she's an interesting person um i believe she had a degree in archaeology and but she does um lots of non-profit work in a completely unrelated um way and so she hasn't actually as far as i know ever assembled this into a book but she's put them put them in calendars, and you can you can find all sorts of little murals um, and uh, catacomb inscriptions and other things of women priests and deacons, and um, of course there's other things known like um, there's some indications that women were bishops in the early early church too, but we'll not get into that. Yeah. Um, another person I would recommend is uh, Phyllis Zagano, and. She actually was commissioned by the Pope, and you know that he's doing some research on female deacons. And so she's one of the people that he's called, um, I think, one of six or something, um, to do the research. And so I would look her up and find her work on the subject as well. Very cool. And I also have two more resources. One is the the work uh, called A Woman's Place, House Churches and Earliest Christianity by Carolyn Oziek and Margaret MacDonald. That's a little more of a... A mainstream critical work but you know a lot of interesting stuff in there about just kind of the nature or the status of women dutiful wives and stuff like that uh, women patrons women as agents of expansion a similar work is work by Lynn Kohick on women in the world of the earliest Christians a bit of an update and a bit of a challenge to some of the stuff in there and finally uh, Ida Spencer's one Timothy commentary in the new covenant commentary series uh, she's the one that convinced me that diakonos probably means minister and so a uh, slim volume, solid volume, and yeah, those are uh, those uh, volumes and recommendations. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs>
All right, so what are we going to do next time? Hmm. Well, since we're going on the artificial <laughs> category of gender in the New Testament, um, eh, let's do Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5? Okay, sounds good. So next time, Ephesians 5.